Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Boom, 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 foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, it's actually bollocks, sir. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you surely, man? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast with Omar Dareth and Ken Early. Hi, Ken. Are you? Good to see you. I'm good, Ken. Andres Bremer slotting his penalty against Argentina in the 1990 World Cup final. Oliver Bierhoff's jammy golden goal against Czech Republic at Euro 96. Franz Beckenbauer striding around the 1974 World Cup final, wasn't he, with his sling, with his arm in a sling? Uh, no, 1970 World Cup semi-final. 1970 World Cup semi-final, Ken. Mm-hmm. Uh, what am I talking about 1974 there? I was about to describe that uh, all of these as some of the most famous images in the history of the game. I probably should have double-checked my, my final image that I used there. Well, no, you remember the image, just not the precise exactly. uh, provenance of that image. But all the image, delivered. The image lives on. All delivered by German football. But, but by the late 90s, their national team had gone stale, was in need of a revolution, and that revolution is at the centre of Raphael Honigstein's new book, Das Reboot, How German Football Reinvented Itself and Conquered the World. You've been reading Raphael's book. You're impressed? Yeah, it's a good book, um, as you would expect, I think, from Raphael. You know him from his uh, contributions on this and many other shows. Um, he brings a lot of intelligence to this subject. Uh, the book essentially is, um, yeah, I mean, as you were saying, on this kind of revolution in German football, uh, which has come a very long way since more or less the turn of this century, um, a time when it was still kind of dominated by very old-fashioned uh, tactical ideas, uh, old-fashioned ideas on about what football was really all about. Um, football was about being stronger than your opponent, ha- being having more determination, having more belief, being more of a character, also having a strong leader on the field. I mean, you had 10 really strong, um, quite obnoxious men, um, all of them fighting uh, at the utmost of their power, and then uh, above them towering one leader, screaming guttural commands, uh, marshalling them on the field. Uh, this was just the way it was. Yeah, This was the way it was for a long time. And, you know, things have changed. Things have, uh, things have changed a lot. So uh, the World Cup win in 2014 uh, is kind of... Uh, the, the way the book is structured is that you've got chapters on... He's kind of retelling the World Cup win in, uh, in great detail with contributions from a lot of the leading figures. You know, you get Muller and Hummels and... Uh, Philip Lamb and Oliver Bierhoff. There's plenty of Oliver Bierhoff in this book. Um, uh, and so it's kind of, you know, you get chapters interspersed where you're going through that World Cup game by game by game. They had this big crisis against Algeria um, where they only managed to beat Algeria 2-1 in the second round and suddenly it was all wrong and we need a leader. We need a leader! Um, so they kind of had to stick to their guns a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but, but then, you know, he kind of intersperses that story with um, but focusing on various, uh, sort of setting the scene to begin with, what things were like before, why things, why everyone realized things had to change, and then the ways in which the different areas in which um, they changed what they were doing and kind of turned to a new way of doing things. Uh, and you hear from a lot of the people who are involved in that. So, yeah, a very interesting 
uh, account of uh, one of the big football stories of the century. Yeah, looking forward to talking to Raphael about that today. Big live podcast news for you before our report on sport next Wednesday night at the Sugar Club in Dublin. We're going to be there with thanks to our kind sponsors, Rabo Direct. We're going to be looking ahead to the playoffs for the Republic of Ireland, hopefully looking ahead to Ireland against Australia or Scotland in the World Cup semi-finals all going well this weekend. If you want to get there, if you're looking for tickets or anything else, any other info, just check out secondcaptains.com for details on that one. Can't wait for that. That's next Wednesday night. Okay, it's uh, now time for the report on sport. Well, we're going to start, we're going to start down with a rather different book. Uh, one I haven't read yet, but hope to read. Go on. And that is Big Sam. Big Sam has a book out. You're bloody right he does, Owen. You're bloody right he's got a book out. And Big Sam has also taken over at Sunderland. Uh, the managerial graveyard that is Sunderland. And he's, and he's been talking about how he's going to change their mentality uh, and hoping that his Newcastle past, although he does a Sunderland past as well, won't count against him. He wasn't at Newcastle for that long. And he wasn't at Sunderland for that long either. So he hopes this time to stick around for a bit longer. But um, what a stroke of uh, good fortune it was that on the very week when Sam Allardyce returns to management after his sabbatical, because uh, he's, he's been enjoying his sabbatical, why not? Sabbaticals are great. I kind of wish I could have a sabbatical. And it's something which football managers these days tend to have quite a lot. Um... You know, when they get sacked from a job, they usually get paid off handsomely. Not always, but, you know, in many cases, they, they, they're they're wealthy men. They don't necessarily need to work every day, every week, every month. And so they can take a little bit of time uh, to kind of smell the roses. And Sam Allardyce's been doing that, doing a lot of TV work. I always like seeing him on TV because I, I basically fundamentally like quite like Sam Allardyce. You know, I'm not going to lie to you, Owen. I like this man. You've interviewed him before. I remember you were yeah. quite taken with him. He's a, he's a nice guy. You know? he All he wants is to be loved. Really. That's all he wants. And the, player, the, the players, not the players, the other managers, who he really doesn't like. What, any of them? No, he, like, he likes loads of them. Oh, sorry. But the ones who the he ones really... Who he doesn't the like. ones who he doesn't like are the ones who have started off by not liking him. <laughs> really? And that's 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 it. It's like this this story of thwarted love, you know. Um, Sam just wants to love and be loved, but then you get someone like Rafael Benitez, a cold fish, who he's like, well, listen, Sam, I'm. How about I do my job and you do yours, and there's no need to get sloppy about it. Sam Allardyce responds to this sting of rejection by. Hating that man forevermore. Until I suspect the day when Rafael Benitez turned to Sam Allardyce with a smile in his eyes and said, Sam, let's just make this right between us. And you know what I think would happen then? I think they'd become stronger. I think they'd be stronger than ever. Stronger even than they could have been. Stronger at the broken places. Uh, I think that Sam responds to love with love. And he responds to coldness and scorn with hatred. Is that not the way of the world with most of us Ken I mean, how many people do you genuinely decide I don't like that guy I don't like that person well, it isn't it's the... usually when you when you think they don't like me we're not clicking here something's not happening I don't like them it isn't the way of most of us because Rafael Benitez treats pretty much everyone the same way that's been one of the problems with his management uh, you know he he kind of it's like he doesn't really have favourites maybe Jabi Alonso a little bit although you see how that, that relationship eventually went pear-shaped. He kind of treats people the same way. He's, you know, he's cold, he's, he's bureaucratic, he's, he's official man. The light uh, glinting off his, his spectacles and blocking out the human eyes beneath, you know. Um, but he, he treats everyone the same way. But does everyone treat him back the same way as Sam Allardyce does? I don't think so. I don't remember anyone else uh, coming out and saying that uh, Rafa Benitez had nought to do with Liverpool winning the Champions League. <laughs> Hell hath no fury like a Sam Allardyce scorn. I saw Barney, I think it was Barney Rone tweeting saying, oh, come on, that's that's a bit much. Surely he could have used Summit <laughs> rather than now. Summit, Summit surely. It's Summit it. to do with. He must have had Summit to do with it. Uh, he, he, you see, Benitez, I'm sure, has rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. But a lot of them have probably just gone, oh, that's Rafa, to be honest, I don't really care. And just gone on with it. But Sam has nursed a grudge because he he's like... He, he's kind of a guy who, he, he really doesn't like this. He responds to it with, with more of the same. He fights fire with fire, big time. 
Uh, so Rafa, uh, uh, he writes about Rafa Benitez. Here was a trendy foreign manager. The only man ever to describe Rafa Benitez as trendy, right? Rafa Benitez was a foreign manager in England, that's true. But he wasn't a trendy manager as such. He was a manager who had won a lot of things. He had won two Spanish titles in the UEFA Cup. You know, he had he had got a s- serious record of achievement. I don't think that's quite the same thing as being trendy. You know what I mean? Uh, but a trendy foreign manager with all his smart ideas getting beat by some oik from the Midlands. Little old me. You know, this is that, right? Little, little old me. Benitez wouldn't talk to me at all. And that just made it all the better when we won. The more accurate accurate ending of that sentence is, and that's the reason why I hate him. <laughs> right? I really hate him. Of course, he can say he won the Champions League with Liverpool, which is something I never did. But it was not to do with him. <laughs> Steven Gerrard took that final by the scruff of the neck and dragged Liverpool back from 3-0 down against AC Milan to eventually win a penalty. I don't blame Benitez for claiming credit, but as managers, we know the truth. It's like when you make a substitution in desperation and it comes off. You get the credit for your tactical brilliance when it's off and just luck. Uh, so, all luck there. Benitez. I mean... They were in the Champions League. Final, I was by the just way. going to say, I love the way it's. They, they only won that because of a certain moment in the. or a certain trend in the final itself. It is a f- competition which involves quite a number of games and quite a few knockout games yeah. that you have to navigate. So, well, Stephen Gerrard did make an impact in those as well, I suppose. He did. Uh, you know, they, they navigated past uh, Juventus without Stephen Gerrard. Um, for instance, he was suspended. Uh, they, they, they won a few big, important games and, you know. But but big Sam anyway, you know. Let's let's let him have this. We we all know what's going on here, right? We know what's going on here. It's not just Benitez who's on Big Sam's enemies list. There's also Arsene Wenger, mm-hmm. another trendy foreign manager. Um, I enjoyed beating Arsenal more than anyone when I was in charge of Bolton. We really got them, and Arsene Wenger hated us," said Big Sam. Of course, Arsenal beat us sometimes, but we drew with them or beat them more often than expected, and Wenger couldn't handle it. There was one time he wouldn't shake hands with me at Highbury because we got a draw. I saw him ripping his tie off and throwing it on the floor in anger. He takes it very personally, says Sam. <laughs> he takes it very personally. And he has an air of arrogance. He's not one for inviting you into his office for a drink after games. Literally, like, if he had just done that once, Big Sam and Arsene Wenger would be massive friends. They would be massive friends. But unfortunately, Wenger couldn't see that. Is he's it a, not, he's a fantastic manager, I can't deny that. But the more I could wind him up, the more I liked it. Is it not Big Sam who's taking it personally? Wenger didn't of share course. a bottle of wine with anybody. <laughs> of course it's Big Sam who's taking it personally. He's he's the one who's... He takes everything personally. He's like incre- a quiver, quivering massive vulnerability. He just wants you to love him. And because he loves you, why can't we all just love each other? I don't understand. You know, it's a pity that football is full of these, these cold, spiky... You know, unsympathetic characters who just don't, who, who lack the human touch. Alex Ferguson understood Big Sam. He understood that what Big Sam wanted was to be kind of rubbed just behind the ears. Ah, oh, look at you there. Get their hands in just around the jails. Oh, yeah, look at you. Yeah. Take him for a walk around the stadium. <laughs> that's what Big Sam wanted. But that's that's fine because he's he's a loving, he's a loving and devoted friend when, you know, when you're on the right side of him. Now, he does obviously. You could say, um, it's one of the things that people say about Sam Allardyce is that he has a tendency to maybe blow his own trumpet a little bit. But I mean, if you're good, why, you know, why hide your light under a bushel, I would say. Yeah. I mean, he did. He had that line about, I'm, I should be managing Inter around Madrid. Yeah, the kind of clubs Rafael Benitez manages, I suppose. Um, but, uh, you know, he talked a bit about Bolton. Uh, he he wanted to take Bolton to the heights of of you know Inter Real, um, which was uh, he essentially um, the problem there was the chairman Phil Gartside. He says, uh, 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 "My relationship with Fulton, Bolton chairman Phil Gartside went downhill after the 2004 Carling Cup final against Middlesbrough. I was taking in the atmosphere in the Millennium Stadium before the game when Phil stopped for a chat. It was clear he was worried about money. Do you know what, Sam?" said Phil. It's been a great journey, but if we win this, we are going to get into Europe, and I'm not sure we can afford it. I couldn't believe what he'd said. I was disgusted. At Christmas 2006, I asked Phil for some money to add to the squad. Look, I said, we can get Bolton into the Champions League. I wanted Phil to show some balls, to go for it, to be part of the dream we had in the early days. But the courage wasn't there. 
He got back to me and said, we've got no money. You can loan a player, but that's it. That's when I knew for sure it was over for me at Bolton. I was thoroughly pissed off at the club's attitude and handed my letter of resignation. I love being in charge of a team that consistently overachieved and upset the establishment by giving the elite a bloody nose. But he says, um, this is the bit where people might say, well, you know, this is what you might expect. He says, my staff and I were presiding over the best coaching setup in the Premier League. At the training ground, I built the war room which was where we planned our strategy and analysed our data on a big screen. It was the Oxford University of football. <laughs> it took years to get it as I wanted, and I never managed to properly recreate it anywhere else. The Milan lab was being lauded as the secret behind Italian football, but I will happily bet we were better than them, and better than Real Madrid <laughs> or Barcelona. Brilliant. Um, just one other thing from Sam. Uh, uh, we'll... Well, he, he, he just... <laughs> I have a feeling it. we'll be hearing more from Sam when you read uh, the entire we, book. Bloody, bloody right we will, Alan. Um... He, he mentions how he went in to, to interview for the England job. I want to do a real knock-your-socks-off interview for the FA. So I put together a PowerPoint which looked at every single detail. There was nothing missing. Nobody but nobody was going to beat it. See, this is the point about Sam Allardyce, right? He's not like a... He's not an old-school football man. Like, Sam Allardyce knows how to use a computer, right? He knows how to use PowerPoint. He believes in using technology to enhance his, his football uh, knowledge. Yeah. You know? He will use, he will use the tools... You know what I mean? He's not hes not one of these guys who says, no, nah, we don't need tools. He says, um, but then Brian Burrick, the chief executive, told me there were no PowerPoint facilities at the interview venue. So I had to print off hard copies for the panel. So much for the progressive FA. I should have got it. And as I'm a better manager now than I was then, I believe I should be in the running whenever it comes around again. That's not vanity or being full of my own importance. My track record entitles me to be considered. I'm ambitious. And I still want the England job, but I have less chance now, even though I'm better equipped to do it. So, again, no power, no PowerPoint. He does have a go at West Ham. West Ham are the uh, club who recently let him go. And he has a story about how he was let go. He, he, he was planning to leave, but then as soon as the match was over, they issued a, uh, a statement to the press within, like, two minutes. saying, Like, he was all set to go and announce on TV, oh, well, that's about it for me here now at West Ham. My work here is done. But they beat him to the punch, you know what I mean? He was annoyed about that. Um, but... Uh, he, he, he blames Graham Souness for starting his long ball label because obviously Souness was another one of these guys who got beaten by his team and you know, criticised and took a cheap shot back. So when he went to West Ham, um, it, the big debate was whether I would follow the West Ham way, which nobody could define, but whatever it was, I apparently didn't play it. I thought the West Ham way was about wearing your heart on your sleeve and showing passion for the club and winning. But the fans were being brainwashed into thinking that historically the club had a particular style of play, which was akin to Barcelona, which was potty. I once called the supporters deluded, and I stand by that. I don't know who invented the West Ham way phrase, but it's a millstone around the club's neck. Basically, says it's a load of, you know, it's yeah. West Ham way. Um, I've talked to my predecessors, Alan Kerberstein, Alan Pardew, and Harry Redknapp. They got it from the, from the neck in the crowd. They got it in the neck from the crowd as much as I did. None of the players would admit it, but they used to sit in the dressing room at halftime going, listen to them, never effing happy, slaughtering us all the time. It's a big anxiety for the owners who need to fill that 54,000-seater Olympic stadium with entertaining and successful football. The fans won't turn up if West Ham aren't playing fantasy football or are playing fantasy football and losing 5-3 every week. Slavin Bilic is a new man in the hot seat. Hot seat. Good luck to him. He will need it. So, look, there's, there's, I hope there's going to be more, but I, for now... I have very little doubt. For now, we'll, we'll move on. And we'll move on to, to another football man, Owen, uh, with less of a profile in the game than Big Sam, but I'm sure also, also certainly a man who can use it, knows his way around a laptop. That is the owner of Brentford, Matthew Benham. Uh, and Sean Ingle has a... Uh, has a piece today in The Guardian uh, where he talks about a, a talk that Matthew Benham recently uh, gave at a conference, and he, he's talking a little bit about Brentford. Now, remember, if you remember when we were over in San Francisco, we talked about these guys a bit, and they also, he also owns the Danish club Midtjylland, and they had um, achieved some impressive successes at the time we talked about them. Since then, they actually knocked Southampton out of the Europa League uh, this the, the start of this season. Um, Brentford, however, got a bit of a bloody nose or a black eye, maybe more of a black eye, uh, which was they sacked their manager, Mark Warburton, before they, they eventually got to the playoffs. They, they didn't get promoted. But they decided to sack their manager anyway, based on the fact that although their league position seemed to be good, they didn't feel as though they really were as good as the league position was suggesting. And these are the clubs who, and this is the owner, who goes 
with the very statistical numbers driven analysis of football. Well, the guy is like a very is a is a stupendously successful professional gambler, right? He's like a guy who has devoted his life, I suppose, to the study of what information makes a difference. Um, and he and he is trying to do this at his clubs. I mean, he owns these clubs now, and he's trying to see if he can build a club which uses these um, ideas better than other clubs are in order to you know, gain an edge. And the thing is, I mean, it can sound all a bit, it sort of sounds a bit crazy, but when you listen to the guy, he sounds so reasonable, right? He's, he doesn't sound like a, you know, you know, that scientist guy in The Simpsons at all, you know, in any sense. Um, so he's, he was introduced as, oh, Moneyball's Matthew Benham, you know, Moneyball, Brentford, Moneyball, Moneyball. Thanks for the kind introduction, but I hate, I hate that. It's much misunderstood. People say, oh, Moneyball. These guys came along and applied stats to baseball, but baseball's been incredibly obsessed with stats for 100 years. Um, Moneyball's idea wasn't about using any old statistics, but statistics as an academic and scientific exercise to see what stats actually helped to predict things. The Moneyball label can be confusing. People think it's using any stats rather than trying to use them in a scientific way. So, um, so basically, he's talking a little bit about you know what kind of you know he says he didn't use to use individual stats for play. The, the bloody nose I never mentioned. Well, I never actually got to the end of the point. They they got rid of uh, Mark Warburton. They hired a new manager, and then they just sacked that manager after eight games this season. It was like. Oh, he was the wrong guy. And everyone was like, oh, he was the wrong guy, was he? Well, that's pretty funny because we thought we thought that your brilliant uh, statistical recruitment was going to identify the right, the right guy, but it turns out you got the wrong guy. Well, not the smartest guys in the room after all, <laughs> right? And everyone was kind of gleefully like yeah. dancing on their grave, you know, and they're kind of like, oh, you know, we made a mistake. Mistakes, mistakes happen. You know, like these NASA engineers who are like trying to figure out why the rocket just, you know, has crashed into the sea again. Like they're kind of like, no, we believe this, you know, we believe we will get to the moon one day. People are going, you'll never get to the moon. Um, et cetera. Yep. Uh, but he sa- he says anyway, that uh, he, he's talking about the kind of individual statistics that they use for players, blah, blah, blah. You can read that in Sean Engel's piece, but he, he had a, he has this line. He says, in about 2008, I gave a presentation to a lot of staff at Smart Odds, that's his like company, basically saying, don't listen to football journalists, they all talk shit. I used one journalist as a specific example. He wrote an article saying all these so-called experts are saying this European player is really good, but I just saw him for the first time, and actually he misses those chances, and he's shit. The player he was talking about was Latan Ibrahimovic. We all had a good laugh at this journalist's expense. And to be fair, he did a big article monstering me, saying I had blind faith in statistics and was proved to have been wrong with that. Part of me thinks, screw you. The other part thinks, fair enough. There's one journalist who interviewed me for a book about four years ago. In the book, I talk at length about the unreliability of my maths model and how I believed, of any maths model, rather, and how I believed in scouting with the eyes. The same journalist said a few months ago, I have total faith in maths models and I don't believe in the human element whatsoever. There's not much you can do about that. Um, yeah, I mean, he... You know, it's it's an interesting kind of uh, debate at the moment. It's something that we'll kind of touch on a little bit in our in our piece with Raphael Honigstein. Mm-hmm. This tension between the uh, between the kind of old school way and the sort of new way, because there's there's faults on both sides. I mean, for one, right, the, a lot of the times when you when you get this the kind of old old football men rejecting it, it's because you know that a lot of it is because they they fear these changes. Because you know, what if you can't use a computer? What if you don't like write email? I don't understand email. You know, if they if they could confess their deepest fears, it would be that this is like a future that. So you find all kinds of reasons. You're saying, oh, these these guys don't get the game. They don't understand the game. Nose buried in a laptop. Blah blah blah. Like about like there was the article recently in the Daily Mail about one of the guys at Liverpool who supposedly was didn't get on with Brendan Rodgers. Like wow, two guys at a club don't get on with each other. But this guy had his nose stuck in a laptop. He didn't understand the game. Right, you know what I mean? Yeah, and in that case, but the people who put that logic out there, anything that happens, such as making a mistake over a manager, nullifies the entire philosophy in these people's views, in, in the old-fashioned views. Well, of course, you mess up picking a manager. Your entire system is a load of nonsense. Your entire system is, is balls. But, you know, so, so I think that there's, like a, there's a kind of an insecurity, a bit, like big, a bit like Big Sam, when he says he doesn't like... You know, he, he gets angry with these guys because of their arrogant behavior, but really they just, he's annoyed that they don't like him. But, you know, so they're, so they're kind of football men are like threatened by this and then find all kinds of things which are wrong with it. Instead of going, oh, this sounds interesting, you know, let's have a, let's see if he's going to, uh, you know, contribute here. But on the other side as well, there's a kind of a, a, 
there's a sort of a there can be a true believer kind of oh these guys are all idiots they don't know they don't know anything these old idiots who just believe in passion and all that the passion is actually a real thing you know what i mean it actually is a real factor it's difficult to measure but it, it does exist you know the, the, the kind of the, ter- the determination of a team to win that is a real thing just because it's hard to put a value on it doesn't mean it's to, to complete completely to be dismissed um and the idea uh, the the problem with analytics in this still nascent stage that it's in is that I mean it's it's as Benham says there, you know the models are unreliable they're kind of flawed we don't really understand yet what what we're trying to measure so if you, if you are putting too much faith in them what you're actually doing is oversimplifying the game you're oversimplifying things you're 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 warping your own understanding of it so it's a difficult balance to strike uh, I mean, the game is. is it's basically chaos out there. You know, you can maybe find some some patterns in it, but fundamentally, like, it's a bunch of guys running around, often in the rain, slipping on the grass, running into each other. You know what I mean? It's like, it's unpredictable. So, um... At its most, um... At its most progressive, I think, those... That statistical analysis of the game and people who espouse its virtues would claim that you actually can measure passion. In certain ways, you can't. There's not a passionometer, mm. but you you see people. You, you know, you produce. They, essentially, they think you can produce a number for everything. Mm. So whether it's based on this guy performing better uh, statistically in bigger games against bigger teams, that might be indicative of a passion or a certain type of passion. You know, mm. they, they're, they're, they actually would argue that you can measure pretty much everything, which mm. I'm not. I don't. I'm not sure about. In fact, you can't. I don't think. Mm. But certainly at the moment, I don't know if you can measure heart and passion and those things. Yeah. The, the, I think the part where it becomes complicated to measure those sorts of things is is because a lot of it is happening like in this moment. You know, you're kind of waiting to see what the measurement is. I mean, what I mean is, you know, you can say you can look at how things have gone in the past in past games, but that doesn't necessarily mean in this game that's coming up things are going to happen the same way. Players come up against each other, re- react differently to each other. You know, it's. You, you don't, you can't, it's difficult to tell in advance what's going to happen before you see it happen. Then you can maybe put it into your your block of data. And over time, you're going to become, get a more accurate idea of maybe what happens. But it's still up in the air, ultimately, which which way it's going to go every time that you take the field. I don't know. I'm probably talking a lot of nonsense here. So we pro- probably should, should just put a stick of cork in this one. Well, a quick word on Zlatan, who you mentioned there. I saw him, I saw some of the Sweden game on... What, what day was that? This is, I'm getting I'm getting confused with all the international football that's been on the last couple of weeks, but yeah. I saw him slot in a nice goal, Ken, where he took a nice touch around the goalkeeper, and it reminded me that he's a very good player. And even though we have seen Sweden up close in recent years, they're not world beaters. There are probably no world beaters in the groups of teams that we can actually play in the playoffs. But the question I want to put to you is, would you prefer to play... Sweden, a team we know are fairly average, but one absolute superstar, or maybe a, I don't know if Bosnia is an example of maybe a slightly better technical team overall, but mm. one without the the one guy who's really going to cause consternation and kill you. Yeah, ah, uh, it's a difficult question. I mean, we played Sweden, um, we did okay against them in Stockholm, and we lost at home to Zatan, largely being responsible for. Well, certainly he played in one of their goals. I can't remember if he scored. I don't think he scored don't actually, so, but he no. did set. He did set up. No, he didn't score. He did set up one nicely. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I do think I'm I'm really relieved that Croatia are no longer there. I think Croatia would have completely outplayed us. It, it would have been an, we would have had to get very lucky to get past them. But these other teams, I mean, Ukraine are the highest ranked uh, in the in UEFA coefficient. Um, they're decent enough side. I think Hungary or Sweden are probably the teams that we'd rather face than Bosnia or Ukraine. But, you know, uh, either way, we don't have to play Croatia. That's good. And any of these teams, you know, some of them, are they, they all have their strengths, but I don't necessarily think any of them are... There's no unbeatable team there. You know, Ireland have a chance against them all. That's it for Kennedy's Report on Sport. And Randolph. Sends it long. That's his tight outside. Shane Long. Shane Long's in behind the defence. Shane Long against Moyer. What else? 
magnifique Porté par un public en liesse, l'Irlande peut croire à l'exploit grâce à son super sub, Shane Long Shane Long Raphael Honigstein is ready to talk about his book, Das Reboot, how German football reinvented itself and conquered the world. Raphael, thanks very much for chatting to us about this and well done on the book. I suppose before we talk about how German football reinvented itself, you should maybe take us back to where it was in the late 1990s. How would you have, how would you quantify or explain the philosophy of football in Germany in that period, late 1990s, turn of the century? Well, I think German football, as far as the national team were concerned, had become its own stereotype, its its own cliche. And I think it what has happened was that German football sort of subconsciously realised it could no longer mix it with the really great teams when it come when it came to playing open attacking football. So they reverted more and more, more and more into their shell. So you know they used to go into big games and say, "Let's not concede. Let's be really difficult to beat. Maybe we can." hit them on the counter-attack, maybe we can score a goal from a free kick or a corner, uh, but let's not at, at any point play too much football and let's make sure the opposition don't play much football. So, you know, a team, a nation that used to be one of the best had basically become an underdog and adopting tactics that teams with, with very few possibilities and quality on the pitch adopt. And, of course, it worked to a certain extent. They got to the World Cup final, which papered over the cracks in 2002. But I think the two Euros, either way, uh, either side of that, showed that Germany really had lost its way quite badly. And also internationally, even though there were some good results for the clubs, I think there was a realization uh, as the new millennium dawned that other teams, for whatever reason, were just playing better football, faster football, technically better football. And... Germany were really forced to take a look in the mirror and find out what's wrong with us and how can we fix this. Uh, I was interested, uh, Raphael, in your description of how uh, football was covered, the Bundesliga was covered uh, in that sort of late 90s, early 2000s period, and the broadcaster at the time, well, you described you describe it very well, um, was really focusing on the dramatic elements uh, of the game. I, I was amazed at the detail that Bayern Munich apparently handed out a sheet with all their players' mobile numbers on it at the start of the season in order to encourage the reporters to get them in the papers more often. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you had this kind of league that was focusing on drama and showbiz and controversy. It also ended a bit Premier League. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit like that. Um, this was commercial television. This was not the BBC or state broadcasters. So their agenda was all about selling advertising and just trying to hype up the games as much as possible. And the way they, they did that was not so much focusing on the actual football, but focusing on the story. So you'd have constant close-ups of the president sitting in the stands, getting angry with the coach. And then the coach would be interviewed saying, we saw your president getting angry. What's your reaction? And then the coach would say, I don't care. You know, I'm the coach, <laughs> not him. <laughs> and then the captain would come out and say, well, you know, as a captain, I'm going to stand behind my coach. And then they'd feed that back to the president and say, have you heard what your captain has said? And, I mean, that's how football was, was talked about. And, you know, when it really then came to analysing, in inverted commas, big defeats or, uh, or wins, it was always about, oh, yeah, this team wanted it more. They had more character. This team bottled it. They're, they're not quite ready for the pressure. And nobody looked at what was actually happening on the game. And I'm a firm believer that the way that football is talked and, and thought about actually has an effect you might not be able to measure it but I think it has an effect on the way the game is played and I think the media if you want to use a very broad term at the time didn't help by just not focusing on what really mattered in my view and it took somebody like Klopp as a pundit at 2006 suddenly talking about things like you know where's the left back why is he in the wrong position and just really simple stuff that you'd never seen before on television to, for people to see, you know, oh, maybe, you know, maybe football isn't just about uh, pressure and psychology and us wanting it more than them. Maybe there are a few more things involved here. Maybe we should actually look at them as well. You mentioned Jurgen Klopp there, Raphael. He was a member of a, of a little tribe in one small corner of Germany. Uh, one of the chapters in this book is called An Island of Modern Football, and the island is Swabia, which is a region in the southeast uh, of the country. And it turns out that a lot of the innovators who have... Uh, the kind of ideas men who have reshaped German football, Jurgen Klopp is one, 
um, and the others would be guys like uh, Ralph Rangnick, Jurgen Klinsmann. They all come from this little area. What was so special about Swabia? <laughs> it's, it's not it's not easy to know. I put that question to Rangnick and to Klinsmann, and they both came up with the identical answer. They said, Swabians are guys who like to, to figure out and like to experiment, and they're a bit stubborn. They don't take no for an answer, and they sort of... Uh, also, with a, a lot of them with an artisan background from their parents and their parents, uh, just like to sit down and sort of um, put puzzles together and, and think things through and, and take things apart and then put them back together again. But I think what happened also, of course, that a network was created. There was a guy who was very influential um, on uh, Ralf Rangnick, Helmut Gross, who even in the 80s played, you know, played forward the back when it was totally unheard of. And managed to have some success at real low level. And then Rangnick became his disciple. And Rangnick then beget other um, coaches underneath him, uh, like Thomas Tuchel, who was his uh, protege at Stuttgart as a youth coach, uh, like Roger Schmidt, now the Leverkusen coach, who he took to to Red Bull Salzburg. Um, And also, in a way, Jurgen Klopp, because Jurgen Klopp was, was Rangnick's big rival in the second division. And they were both playing this really new very strange brand of football where the national team were still playing uh, free at the back with a sweeper. And uh, there was this great line uh, in a newspaper report, I think in 1999, where they're saying, how is it possible that we see the second uh, division full of team? By that point, it's become quite um, prevalent. How is it possible that in the second division, we see people playing zonal marking and forward the back and pressing? And uh, the under-15s at Stuttgart can do it, but the national team has never heard of it. And that really, I think, shows you just uh, there was innovation, was happening, but it was just really from the bottom up. And it took a long, long time to actually reach uh, the big teams and the national team. What were the basic principles behind the new game? I think the basic principle was to stop men marking. Um, I mean, men marking was still the number one way to, to deal with, uh, with your position when, you, when it came to defending. There were some zonal markings under Ernst Happel and uh, in the 80s, but no one did it properly. And I think once you do it, um, once you believe that zonal mark is the way forward, then the next step is, okay, what do we do when we don't have to run after, after uh, the opposition? Should we just stand there and wait or should we actually try and run after the ball? And that was, I think, the, back, back, the next big innovation. And it came very much from Gross and from Rangnick and these guys. And then they started pressing systematically. And uh, they showed, you know, they, it was a kind of case study and the case was proven that you could achieve results against better sides by just having better tactics. And that, was, that little insight was, in a way, revolutionary because up until that point, everybody in Germany still believes better teams win. And uh, a coach... Coach's main role is to motivate. If uh, big teams don't win, it's because the coach doesn't motivate them well enough. Nobody really talks about tactics at that point, but Rangnick and Klopp, who win things you know, with really small teams, with no budget at all, show that actually we can do something here. And at that point, I think people will slowly start to notice that maybe the reason why we're not winning anything internationally is not just because we don't want it enough or because... You know, uh, our players are too too well paid, or the or the our youth of today is playing too many games on PlayStation, or all these things that people talk about at the time. Maybe it's to do with things like our tactics not being quite up to scratch anymore. And it's through these guys that that change happens uh, at a gradual level, and it filters through and then gets all the way to the top, mostly because of Klopp's great success with Dortmund. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned how Ranga kind of. Had, had his first insight into this when he was uh, I think 24 and he's playing for a, a kind of small team that he played for in a training match against uh, Dinamo Kiev and at one point looks around and is and is going what's going on here it's like they've got 13 or 14 <laughs> players in the field so he's kind of thinking I've never seen this before and thinks about it for a while and, and this is this is kind of the insight that leads him to sort of develop this school but it's not as though really people were prepared to listen to this guy because as I said he was he was only playing for some village team it wasn't like he was uh, Matthias Sammer or someone who had you know a profile or kind of uh, credibility uh, he was 
a kind of uh, an, an outsider and scoffed at. You, you describe what happened when he went on TV. He went on one of like the late night TV highlights or talk shows to do a little, I suppose, seminar mm-hmm. on, on his ideas. Tell us about that and, and what, what the reaction was. Well, what happens to Rangnick is he goes up with Ulm. They get promoted. And this Ulm is like a nothing team, like mines in a way. Uh, they've never been to the Bundesliga. Rangnick takes them up with his football. And suddenly people you know, turn around and say, you know, well, what's going on here? Um, they're in the second Bundesliga and they're about to get promoted to the first division. And he is invited as a new, they recognize that he's just of a new breed of coaches, but they're not quite sure what he's doing. So they say to him, um, well, there's a lot of talk about four at the back. Can you explain this for the audience? And uh, they put him sort of next to a board and um, he just in very simple terms just explains it. And then, uh, but the terms are not quite simple enough. So the, the anchor man then sort of puts it even more simpler terms. And then there's applause from the audience saying, oh, thank you for telling us. And this is great news. And for, yeah, for translating almost what was being said. <laughs> yeah. brains, brains over there, yeah. But the reaction is really, really bad because the whole Bundesliga establishment turn around and say, who is this little upstart, you know? Has he ever played for a big team? Has he ever coached a big team? Who is he to tell us that we're not doing our job properly? And they start briefing people. And uh, there's almost like an orchestrated campaign to hound this guy out. And it takes him a long, long time to recover from this image that the media then creates about a guy who's like a nerd, you know, a football nerd, a guy who's he's a laptop guy, you know, as you see. Even the other day, I mean, the similar, similar terms are still being used. Um, uh, what does he know about real practice you know he's a fear theorist uh, which is a big insult and uh, it takes him a long time to recover from that and only really when he has some success with Hoffenheim almost a decade later then he finally arrives because he shows that Hoffenheim can can mix it with Bayern and nearly win the league in his first year ever in the Bundesliga with them and that's when he sort of cements his position and has a triumphant return to the same show uh, and it's now being seen in a very different light. But yeah, I think the reaction really spoke volumes at the time. Nobody wanted to listen to him, and uh, the establishment did everything in their power to to undermine him. I was struck uh, reading this, Raphael, by the kind of undercurrent of hostility there is towards those old school guys in the book. I mean, you know, you're, you're doing some, you're doing a lot of reporting here. There's there's a lot of uh, you're, you're covering different strands of the story, but there is a kind of a recurring tone when these guys come up. Uh, that makes me think, I mean, I, I wondered about your own experience. As coming up. Did you have a kind of a sense of, you know, it, it seems to me as though you were on the side more of the, of the modernizers than the Oscar, and you don't really remember the days of their ascendancy with much affection. Um, the days of the, who's the ascendancy? The you know, the kind, of, the kind of the character, it's all about having leaders, it's all about uh, fighting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I spent a lot of um, my time in Germany. I was already living in England, and when I came back, and there was always these debates, you know, where are leaders, where are big players, how come we don't want it? You know, where's our bottle gone? We just we just become soft, and... and um, just looking at from from an outsider's perspective, I just thought, you know, people are just not really talking about what really matters. And I would always use the opportunity to to have a go and say, you know, this is not this is not important. I remember so well, I, I don't think I wrote this, um, but I was on one of those talk shows and Udo Latek was there. I mean a legendary coach, lovely guy, but you know, a guy who's firmly stuck in the in the in the eighties really and all talks about player uh, managers having to control the dressing room and that's that's their job, you know, nothing else. And he says to me, uh, we're talking about Germany, and he says, um, you always need to know who the chef is on the pitch. <laughs> chef is like a German word for boss. And I say, um, I, I think you need a chef in the kitchen. I don't think you need a chef in the pitch. You need to have people take responsibility. And it's like the audience is just like looking at me. Like they, were, they looked at Rangnick, you know. It's like, who is this guy? <laughs> How can he tell Udo Latek, you know, what football is about? And, I mean, you would, you'd have this debate. And I would turn around um, after the World Cup final in Rio. I had dinner with colleagues from Süddeutsche. And I said to them, look, you guys... You should consider yourself, in my view, World Cup winners as well, because you were the guys who, for 20 years almost, wrote against this sort of old school way of looking at things and championed the likes of Löw, the likes of Klinsmann, 
against huge resistance from from the tabloid press, from me, from the TV media, you should you should be proud. And uh, it was a kind of a joke, but at the same time, I actually really meant it. And I I believe in it that you know it, the story could have worked out very differently if Klinsman was hounded out of his job before the World Cup. Somebody like I don't know Obma Hitzfeld does take over, or even Otto Rehagel. I'm not sure we'd be sitting here having this debate now. Uh, the, for all that, do you think that the changes that did occur would have would have never really happened? This would have never all been pushed through if it weren't for the collapse of the TV partner of Kirsch Media in Germany and the money problems that essentially when anyone runs out of money, they have to start thinking about things a little more creatively. And that seems to be what happened. Yeah, I think it helped. I think that change was already afoot because by the time Kirch collapses, the, the Bundesliga clubs have actually agreed already to set up academies and to really overhaul the system and the German FA had already done first steps to doing that in the late 90s even so Kirch just helps and then of course it creates teams like young teams like Stuttgart who then act as trailblazers and people say ah you know we can play the youngsters and maybe we don't have to buy the 25 year old Czech international um, if we can play the 18 year old so it helped in a way in a, in a perverse way but I don't I think that by that time actually Things were already in the right path. And then the next step, big step forward is A, the success of the 2006 World Cup, where Klinsman kind of changes the whole atmosphere around the team, um, so rebrands them, um, makes people think of German football in a different way. Um, and then the success of likes like Rangnick and Klopp in a few years later uh, domestically. And so I think the software or, you know, the, the, the grassroots reforms by that point have already, had already kind of started to kick in. So, yes, Kirch helped, but I think um, the lessons had already been learned to a certain extent before that. There's some interesting um, statistics in here, Rafael, about the uh, composition of the uh, academies. The, the, the kind of academy system in the Bundesliga was, was totally overhauled and, and transformed around this same time, 2002, 2003. And now... Um, Pretty much all the clubs have got, you know, three-star, um, high-quality academies. And the interesting thing you find about the players in these academies is that there appears to be a higher level of educational attainment among those footballers than there is among the general population. In terms of they're going to a later stage in school, more of them are doing the Abitur, which is the kind of A-level equivalent in Germany. This was very interesting because, I mean, it's only a couple of weeks ago that Alex Ferguson was saying essentially it's impossible to combine... Um, education, uh, it's impossible to combine education and football. This would seem to suggest that in Germany, um, increasingly they they sort of go hand in hand or, you know, that football itself is becoming maybe a more intellectually demanding activity and also it, it appears a much more middle class uh, sport than, than in the past. Yeah, I mean, this was one of the things that surprised me most. In a way, I had a hunch because, you know, you talk to these players and they don't, they're not like the players that you used to have 20 years ago who really were just all about football and then maybe having... Switching good... effortlessly between languages, that sort of thing. And, and yeah, or I, just today, I mean, these guys have a different perspective on, on life. They're not about just playing football and then getting drunk and then, and then going off with their mates, uh, teammates' girlfriend. I mean, these, it's a very different breed of, breed of players. And talking to somebody like Volker Kersting, who's the head of the youth development at Mainz, um, that was borne out in the numbers. I mean, the numbers are now, if you don't make A-levels, you're in the minority. And I think there's two things of this. You can have a sort of a chicken and egg uh, conversation here. But I think, A, the German FA um, and, the, and the DFL to a certain extent, they realize that getting the schooling right with the academies is a huge step forward because simply in terms of demographics, you are no longer forced at 16 to make a decision that most middle-class parents especially uh, would be afraid of because they say, you know, what are the odds? The odds are against us. So I'd rather here take my son, take the safe route and go to continue his um, secondary uh, education and then try to be a footballer. So by enabling these guys to stay in school longer, you suddenly have a whole new demographic area of people that can become professional footballers. And at the same time, Kersting says, the, as you were saying, Ken, the intellectual demands on footballers these days are so high that actually they find that the less, less educated ones find it actually harder and harder to get through. So it's almost sort of turned on its head 
where um, you know the the suspicion sometimes is that the, the German model kind of creates all midfielder types and very technical. What well, what is true that they take it's creating middle class types and they have a family that can deal with with money with with the pressure of being in public life, and you just don't have these Gaza types, you know, who just go off the rails. Um, and I think that is part really of of the success as well. It's become a real profession, the way that, you know, lawyers or, or, uh, or plumbers or, or anyone who wants to have a, uh, a career in inverted commas would approach it. German football has managed to do that. It's sort of taken out that kind of element of randomness and says, you know, if you're talented enough, we'll make you into a good footballer. Raphael, we've mentioned, uh, we, we've kind of t- touched on Jurgen Klopp there. You said that he first came to prominence on TV uh, and talking. About, he started talking about it in, in an intellectual way, I guess is, is maybe one way of phrasing it there. Uh, has he changed much in those days? The Jurgen Klopp that now arrives at Liverpool, has he been emboldened by his successes in recent years? Is he the same kind of person who first popped up on TV screens a few years back? Well, I think he was always a very confident guy and Everyone who you talk to will tell you that the guy just could just talk about anything and everything to anybody and and convince them. And I think he's he's still got that. Of course, it's even better now in terms of how he can address the players. I think his own stature makes it easier to bring to put the message across. Players look at him and they see somebody who's who's won things and who's taken Dortmund to the very top of well, even international football at least for a year. I think he's changed in the sense that his his profile is such that he is slightly less patient when it comes to dealing with journalists and can get a bit abrasive and is not averse to a bit of power play behind the scenes and you know sort of being quite stubborn. He's no longer the minds guy, you know, who was a player coach. Um, he's no longer even the Dortmund guy who who took a uh, mid-table team to success. He is now a a real big name and uh, I think it's hard for even for the most humble person sort of to to leave all that aside um, because it's so tempting to use that to, to your advantage when it comes to you know comes to controversy or comes to forcing your 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 way through and I think he's he's a bit more hard hard-edged and hard-nosed than he was before but I, that's probably normal after you know, 15 years as a as a coach in a business. Yeah, I mean, he, it sounded like he was hard-nosed, hard-edged enough when he arrived at Dortmund. Um, you know, you mentioned that the first thing he did arriving there was boot out, uh, well, not boot out, but bench Alexander Fry and Mladen Petric, who were the two kind of big stars who everybody assumed were the most important players. And he said, no, these guys can't really can't really press the way that I want, therefore they're gone. It doesn't sound too good for Daniel Sturridge and Christian Benteke, especially now that the, um, that the man making the decisions is, is so much more powerful and maybe, maybe slightly crazed by power. Yeah, I think he's not, he's not quite crazed by power just yet, but um, I think he'll use that power to impose his will on the team, no doubt. I think you'll have to play in a certain way for him to do it. He, it's not just about tactics for him, it's... Um, and Mario Balotelli would have never played simply because he just sets a really bad example to the rest of the side. And one old quote I found the other day, which I found was quite interesting, was he said, um, the, the 11 players you play might not necessarily be the best 11 players in the squad, but they're the ones that actually work best together. And I don't think he'll ever choose a big name ahead of somebody who does a better job for the team. So... I mean, Ben Teke storage, these guys, you know, you, maybe they should be worried a bit, but it's up to them to adjust. I think Sturridge showed that when, he's got a, when he had a Suarez and Sterling next to him, that he was part of a um, hard-working front line. I think when Ben Teke is by himself with, you know, no one near him in 20, 30, 40 meters, what is he going to do? Um, he can't even press anyone by himself. So I think if Dortmund play... Uh, sorry, I said Dortmund. <laughs> I think if Liverpool... Play more as a team, play more compact. It'll automatically, in a way, make everybody work harder because if you want to keep keep close together, you have to cover more ground, you have to go up and down a bit more, you have to up the pace, and then we'll see if if they can do it. It's great. If not, I think he'll be he'll have no no um, scruples whatsoever 
trading them in for, for younger, um, less expensive models because he's shown in the past that uh, it's actually more important to, to have the right player for your system rather than to have big names who don't fit. Raphael, just one more question for you, uh, and that's based on last week. We haven't talked to you since last Thursday in the events in Dublin at the Aviva Stadium. Um, since then, obviously, uh, Germany struggled to beat Georgia. We weren't focusing too much on that game ourselves because we were too busy in Poland. Uh, what's the reaction been from the, the German camp and people in Germany about their stuttering finish to the qualifying campaign? Well, I think as far as the game is concerned, there was, I think, a view that both teams in Dublin got exactly what they deserved. I mean, Ireland were well worth their win and Germany were poor and deserved to be beaten. Um, it was a classic sort of unfocused, lackadaisical, uh, slightly complacent performance, similar to the ones we had seen at the beginning of the campaign. And the Georgia game was, I wouldn't say as bad, but not convincing either. So... I think what people said is, okay, you know, let's forget this as quickly as possible. We all know from, from our own experience in recent years that it all means very little when it comes to the tournament next year. Germany, in a way, uh, might even take some comfort from going into the tournament, not quite knowing how good they are, because that's the way to do it if you're, if you're German. There's always some kind of a angst or, or crisis or, you know, an ease about this team. But it does show that there are some problems, problems that are typical of an international team who cannot just go and buy a couple of decent fullbacks. Um, that's where they struggle at the moment. They found a solution at the World Cup by playing four centre-backs, a very, very uh, pragmatic, unloved type solution. I'm not sure they'll do it again, but at this stage, uh, that seems to be the biggest issue for them. I think the quality is such that if they go back to playing their regular game at their regular level they will still be among the favourites. So it's not, it's not all doom and gloom just yet. It's just a typical sort of German uh, navel-gazing and uh, concern. You magn always magnify your own problems and mistakes until you look around and see, you know, France, Spain, England, they all have problems of themselves and maybe we're not that bad. And I think the same dynamic will happen come June. Still, the fact that the side that, you know, beat Brazil 7-1 can now, is now capable of losing 1-0 to Ireland... You know, whatever the circumstances, it shows that you know whenever you get to the, whenever you have a big success and sort of you're, you're at the top for a while, there's only one thing that tends to happen there. You know, it's the circle of life, Raphael. One, the, one day, all of these ideas that uh, you've been talking about to us are going to seem quaintly old-fashioned as well. Uh, and I wondered if, uh, looking around Germany, you can see the beginnings of whatever the next thing is is going to be. Is there going to be someone out there who? who goes back to three at the back in a sweeper and just a big, uh, sharp elbow centre forward. Maybe uh, that's going to be the next innovation, or if there is one, where is it going to come from? Uh, I mean, yeah, there's always a reaction um, against uh, what, what is considered the norm and the orthodoxy. Now, pressing game has become the norm in the Bundesliga. If you go up um, as a small side like Paderborn, like um, Braunschweig, uh, Ingolstadt, uh, you will play a pressing game because you feel that's the only way we can win. We have to get the ball back. If we sit back, the better sides will just kill us. So everyone's playing pressing game. So, of course, now the reaction is to say, let's, um, let's just boot the ball as long as we can so that we don't fall victim to this pressing. And Darmstadt have gone up. Um, and somebody posted the other day a stats. I think they have the worst passing stats in the whole of Europe. Uh, as far as the top teams are concerned, but they don't care. You know, they just boot it long. And, uh, and rush everybody, and they're sort of playing Wimbledon kind of uh, pomo football, and it works to a certain extent. I, I think that the universal ideas, though, that, be, that are behind Germany's game now, and it can be flexible. You know, Germany played different to Dortmund, for example. They play more like Bayern, I would say, than, than Dortmund ever did. Um, but I think the universal ideas of ensuring that your team is, plays really quick uh, ensuring that your team has really technical players that can take the ball and control it in tight spaces and pass pass it quickly and accurately. I think all these things are here to stay. And everything else is just, you know, details and being a bit flexible. So I don't see um I don't see anyone having that kind of impact that that Klopp or Rangnick did simply because Germany was so far behind at the time, behind everybody else. Now I think it's a much more they are up there with the best leagues in the world and the best teams can beat the best of every other team, every other league. And 
I just don't see the need for innovation is, is quite as great. Um, Christian Seifer talked about the fact that maybe if the Bundesliga had as much money as the Premier League, we wouldn't see any um, youth development at all because people thought, you know, what's the point? So maybe there's a bit of an equilibrium now between success but having money but perhaps not too much money and I hope in a way that um, it'll continue like that for the few next few years. All right, well, Raphael, well done in the book. It's called uh, Das Reboot, How German Football Reinvented Itself and Conquered the World. Thanks very much for talking to us today. Thank you so much, guys. All right, hope you enjoyed that chat with Raphael there. Uh, we only touched on Jurgen Klinsmann there, Ken, mm. um, because there was quite a lot of stuff to talk about with Raphael there, but just to take that up a little bit further, Klinsmann, uh, it always struck me that he wasn't exactly... As a manager, I mean, he wasn't exactly revered in Germany. You know, he was part of that really feel-good story in 2010. 2006. In, in, in 2006 in Germany. But even back then, people were saying, oh, yeah, but, you know, it's kind of this assistant Yogi Love and it's these boffins and it's these other people. Klinsmann's a bit of a figurehead. Seemed to be the sense that I got. Maybe I was misreading that you were in Germany at the time. But what he's done with the United States since seems very impressive. And Although he's having a few problems there at the moment. Right. They're kind of having a bit of a... They're having a bit of a... I think it's Klinsmann's running up against his problem that he has a lot in his life. I mean, in his professional life, which is he is a, he's not the sort of person who inspires a lot of affection in the people around him. He is a little bit cold, a little bit detached. Um, he's not somebody... That, and he, he, he is a very important figure in this book. And Raphael goes over to California and he's got a big interview with him. And there's a lot, a lot of Klinsmann interspersed through this. And he is maybe the major figure in who who rammed through a lot of this in the beginning at the highest level in Germany with the national team he was the guy who came along and remember unlike say Rangnick we were talking about Ralph Rangnick who didn't have a big playing career Klinsmann had a big playing career uh, was a major player for the national team a well-known figure who traveled around a lot traveled around a lot uh, and that's one of the things that one of the things people didn't even like uh, you know, he went. To, he played in Italy. He played in France. Played for Monaco. He played for Spurs. Um, eventually, he went to Bayern. It turned out that he told his dad. He promised his father, "I'll never go to Bayern." His father was one of the like sixty percent of Germans who hate Bayern Munich more than anything on earth. Please, son, promise me one thing. And of course, he broke that promise to his, to his father. Well, he he rang up his father and said, "Listen, Dad, um, there's an offer on the table from Bayern Munich. It's a good offer. Uh, do you mind if I maybe?" you know, retract my vow to you. And the dad said, with a heavy heart, okay, son, you do what feels right. But when Klinsmann went to Bayern, he didn't really... Bayern is a bit like the Moonies, you know? Uh, Uli Hoeneß wants everyone to think that they are actually all part of the same family, right? <laughs> it's like he really takes the family club thing very seriously. You all have to kind of really buy into the culture of the club. And Klinsmann is like, nah, Culture of the club is stupid. Why do we go and stay at this hotel way out of town before games? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? You know, complaining about stuff. Whereas the attitude you were supposed to have was, yes, this is Bayern, this is the best, this is what we do. So Klinsmann had this kind of questioning outsider's attitude, which was part of the reason why he was, eventually was the was the right person to kind of lead this change. on the Because he, he had no respect for any of these old traditions. He just thought, nah, why are we doing that? It's stupid. Um, that rubs people up the wrong way. You know what I mean? When you when you, when you you take that attitude, like Matthias was the opposite of Klinsmann. Matthias was like, oh, you know, Bayern, really, Hunnis, we're all brothers. I mean, they, they obviously all fell out in the end because Matthias falls out with people. But, you know, he was totally against this. Oh, Klinsmann, you know, he doesn't care about anything. He just He's just all about his own ambition. You know, he doesn't care about other people. Like Lothar cared about other people, you know. But he was... He, uh, I mean, obviously, his uh, his time with Germany ended at that 2006 World Cup. Um, he didn't continue on. And when he went to Bayern as manager, it didn't work out for him. Um, it, you know, he was sacked in his, like, before he finished the season, which is a disaster, you know. But he does, Raphael certainly gives him quite a lot of credit for helping. I mean, not a perfect, not a perfect guy. He made plenty of mistakes, but... Uh, in the aggregate, I think his contribution was good. Which is interesting in that he's a legendary footballer with the country. It's not always that way. It's sometimes the less recognised people, the, the the nerd, the football nerds behind the laptops, as uh, Raphael talks about, who make those kind of impacts. Anyway, we have to wrap things up at this stage just to let you know the our Rugby World Cup semi-final preview is out today. Quarter-final preview. No! 
I've done it. If any Argentine Argentinian mm. people are listening to this, I that was a slip of the tongue. I I do not think we're definitely through to the semi-finals. Sean O'Brien, of course, will be available again. Sean O'Brien will be available for the can't semi-finals. To, yeah, Johnny Sexton should, should be back to full fitness there. Yeah, but uh, anyway, Matt Williams and Diego Albanese, the man who scored the try against Ireland in Lons in 1999, he has played many times against us and plenty of World Cup experience. He's going to join us on that show as well. So have a listen to that today. And a reminder: next Wednesday night, the Irish Times second captain's podcast will be in the Sugar Club, a live recording if you catch my drift on that one uh, of the show will take place there secondcaptains.com for any details on tickets for that one, thanks very much Ken Thank you too. Thanks for listening, take care Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Isaac Quainall, Tom Stewart. Now that KO has 4K, people will see every detail. I better wash my hair. Oh, I'll book in a spray tan. Maybe a manicure? I'm shining up my tats. Experience amazing detail with 4K, now on KO.